I'm Bonnie Greer, and you're listening to Walks of Art. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the art of Bloomsbury. It's really great to be a Bloomsbury local. There are so many nationalities and ethnicities and stories here. And, you know, I like to think that I know a bit about the area, but today I'm trying to surprise myself. I'm going on a walk to meet experts, artists, and enthusiasts who can tell me something new about the Bloomsbury Group. That collection of influential and gifted writers, intellectuals, philosophers, and artists, particularly the artists. Their work and outlook deeply influence literature, aesthetics, as well as modern attitudes towards feminism, sexuality, and even interior design. There was a saying about them. They lived in squares and loved in triangles. Well, we'll speak about the significance of the triangles later. But one of the squares they lived in was the one I'm sitting in the center of now, Gordon Square, WC1. One of the people who lived in this square, the great novelist Virginia Woolf, wrote, No need to hurry, no need to sparkle, no need to be anybody but oneself. I'm setting out to discover what that independence meant to them and what it could mean now to us in contemporary London. Before I started exploring Bloomsbury's bustling streets and leafy squares, I visited Tate Britain to meet up with Claire Barlow, curator of the exhibition Queer British Art. I wanted to find out about Bloomsbury's unique place in the history of LGBT visual culture. In the sort of 1920s through to the 1960s, you're in a period in which sex between men is illegal, sex between women is not really known about or really frowned on, and this creates huge secrecy and silence. And Bloomsbury is one of the most radical experiments in kind of modern love. They're all very close friends, they're lovers... And that is certainly true of some of the most famous Bloomsbury relationships, such as that between Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell. Grant and Bell live together at Charleston House. Bell is married to Clive Bell. He doesn't live with a family. Grant and Vanessa have a child together. But Grant also, um, some of his really important boyfriends come and stay. This really captures the sense that this is a circle which is both artistically incredibly creative, but also is really trying to scrutinise modern life and think, is there a better way of being, a better way of doing things? It's very hard to know how far the wider public is aware of the relationships within Bloomsbury. Certainly someone like Duncan Grant is absolutely extraordinary in his exploration of queer intimacy. He's somebody who is really capturing the sort of domesticity of queer life to an extent that you don't really get in anyone else's work until someone like David Hockney. Actually, people do see something in Duncan Grant's work at the time, which they find very shocking. Duncan Grant's Bathing from 1911, which is a commission for Borough Polytechnic, it's quite flat. There's 
figures where the anatomical form has been quite simplified, swimming in the water, diving or preparing to dive, and then on one side of the canvas there's two figures clambering into a boat. The faces are left blank, although we can speculate relationships between them, it's very much left to the viewer's imagination. When it's first installed, the National Review describes the painting as a nightmare. Standing in front of that painting, it's almost impossible to see what the reviewer is seeing. Part of the reason as to why it provokes this reaction is that Grant is basing it on figures swimming in the serpentine. The serpentine is a popular cruising spot. And this idea of kind of cruising by the river, picking up potential lovers, is something which he explores in other works, such as his Bavers by the Pond. And for me, Bavers by the Pond is the much more explicit work. You have lots of nude men sunbathing, some of them bathing, and the glances that they're exchanging are positively electrifying. One of the things that I think is the hallmark of Grant's character, something he says which his daughter describes as being one of his favourite maxims, is never be ashamed. There's a kind of honesty in the way that Grant lives his life. If he's attracted to someone, he's interested in sleeping with them. There's a, a complete refusal to live within the narrow parameters of what is permissible for male intimacy or what is permissible for friendship. I think that kind of easy openness, engagement and support is a really important aspect of what holds Bloomsbury together. I just walked over to Tavistock Square and I'm standing in front of the bust of Virginia Woolf, reminded of what she wrote about the composition of her novel to the lighthouse, how she walked around Tavistock Square, thinking about it, how it came to her. And you can still actually believe that to be true. It's still a leafy, beautiful place, repose, quiet. Virginia lived here with her husband, thinking about her sister Vanessa Bell, the great artist, and how the two of them, in their own particular disciplines, really began to look at the place of women in the 20th century. Well, well, any second now, huh? Good to meet you. How are you? And your thesis on these women. Writer and art historian Catherine McCormick has come to join us here in the rustle and buzz of Tavistock Square. She tells me how Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell, in rebellion against their beautiful mother, set out on radically new artistic paths. The girls lost their mother in 1895, Julia Stephen, this paragon of late Victorian beauty and femininity passed away and Vanessa Bell being the eldest sister had to take on this identity of something that was called the angel in the house. The angel in the house was pious, obedient, self-sacrificing, totally without interest for herself. If we think about Julia Stephen, the pre-Raphaelite beauty, feminists don't really like pre-Raphaelite painting because the women look drugged, heavy-lidded. They're these objects that are silent and creep and around. they're dying in a way. They're, they're dying, dying. Well, they're exactly yes. being strangled by their own exactly. hair because they yeah. haven't paid attention to and doing their sewing and, everything. and embroidery yes, exactly. and all of that kind of thing. Yes. So it's the type of beauty that 20 years later got completely dismantled. And then 
you get the portraits, for example, of Iris Tree, and she has this glamorous shock of bobbed, fringed blonde hair and eyes that are sparkling and bright, and especially the way Vanessa Bell portrays her, she fills the canvas almost like that depiction of Henry VIII that we're really familiar with. This with his striding look. Absolutely, yes, yes. and it's so possessive of the space. It's so affirmative of her presence, of being a woman who's being observed by another woman and not being depicted as a passive object and she does represent a different ideal of feminine beauty that is the absolute opposite of the angel in the house, Julia Stephen. For Vanessa Bell, in terms of painting, you see her her way of converting her domestic world into something that expressed a new visual language and she picked up the currents of things that were happening in Europe. So she visited Paris in 1914 she visited the studios of Picasso and Matisse and was very much influenced by their new visual language, which was the language of abstraction. The domestic becomes the space where they work, no longer the space of what we might think of now as oppression, but becomes a space where they can explore their new language, for Virginia in the literary sense. And for Vanessa Bell, the paintings that she made in that early period after Paris were entirely abstract. To me, the yellow background of Composition 1914 could have started as something like a vase of flowers. Flower painting was a discreet hobby for lady painters, as they were called, and she's turned it into something which is a dynamic experiment with colour and simplified form. And the seated pieces, the figures are sitting, but we don't see their faces. Oh, the portraits, and that, yes. And that is, again... Their mother was so painted. For me, that is the most interesting part of Vanessa Bell's work. It really jumped out the importance of thinking about that because that blankness, that empty space, leaves so much to the imagination and interpretation. So it becomes less about superficial beauty and more about the space perhaps behind the eyes, what's going on in the internal. And that's very, very radical for the time, and especially in Britain, maybe leads us to think about the interior world of a woman which is something that we're very interested in now with writers, people like Eleanor Ferrante, Deborah Levy. I think Vanessa Bell was doing that alongside her sister's experiments in writing at the beginning of the 20th century. There's not a big distance, there's not a big gap. It was through those portraits of those blanked out faces that I thought this is something really important and special that we need to recognise and that we need to think about and talk about, especially because it's so relevant right now, the continuing commercial faces of women that we see in advertising and social media, the way people try and make themselves look like pictures on different social media channels. And I think it's very useful for us to look back to what Vanessa Bell is saying about femininity, the potential of femininity as being something that's beyond the surface and looking inside to something that's very powerful because it's the unknown. Take the face away. Take the Take face away, away and you have something that can't fix. We can't frame those women in a picture like her mother was framed you know, it's unsettling a little bit because we don't know what's going to come out of that face. We can never really get there. And maybe what we see is our own face at the end. Absolutely. There's always the potential for the mirror. And maybe that's what we look for. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. My McCormick. pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure.
I found it hard to believe that the Bloomsbury set were really radicals. A century later, their wealth, their lifestyles, the clubs they created seemed to me to be aristocratic and exclusive. But meeting Ellie Jones, a PhD student from King's College London, went a long way towards changing my mind. She explains how the Bloomsburys, especially Duncan Grant, entered into a uniquely open and intimate relationship with the art and culture of people of African descent living in London. The kind of influence that black artists had on Western art is far more well-known in terms of New York and Paris. The London story is far less well-known. At the same time, we knew that there were performers in London who were being photographed by white photographers. So it was just a case of pursuing that and delving deeper. And then through that, these stories have been uncovered. The Bloomsbury set were Mm wealthy-ish people. So there would have been some colonial activity back there in their family. Grant's family have a colonial past. He was born in India. You see these complexities in their art. Grant, in some ways, perpetuates this colonial vision of a black subject sometimes. In other times, you see the relationships between an artist and model is far more complicated than that. These people had far more agency than just being a colonial subject to Bloomsbury. Intimacy and relationships are incredibly important. And to focus on the way that he portrays intimacy, I looked at his private drawings. A lot of them depict interracial couplings. Some of them are scenes of group sex. Some of them are just cuddling. And he drew them obsessively over a decade he would pick up anything that was just lying in the studio. So some of them are done on the back of a newspaper, some of them are done on receipts. Because he did hundreds of them, it's almost like he's trying to capture something that's very fleeting, which intimacy is. It's interesting and really important that they are interracial and not just, I'm a white artist drawing a black body. What I find moving is that there were friendships, there were real, real bonds. I think one of the most important relationships for Grant in his later life was with a man called Pat Nelson. There were hostels in Tavistock Square, which is where Caribbean students would stay. So he was around Bloomsbury in the late 30s, and he took up work as an artist model. It's not known exactly how him and Grant met, but they became lovers. Even though their romance ended, they maintained a very strong friendship. And... Gemma Romain has written a biography of Pat Nelson and she's done a lot of research tracing his life through Tate's archives, through his letters to Grant. Nelson joined the military in 1940 and then became a prisoner of war and Grant was listed as his next of kin. I think that really demonstrates the closeness that they had. He was very traumatised after the war. I think he moved back to Jamaica for a period of time and then in the 60s he was back in London Grant did a portrait of him, and it's a really affectionate portrait. He's older, he's sat in a chair, he's very comfortable in himself. He's clothed, which makes a change (laughs) for some paintings that Grant did. And what's really touching is he has a scarf slung over his shoulder, and it's an Omega workshop fabric. Whether it was a gift from Grant or whether he just thought, I'll wear it for this sitting, regardless, it's a symbol of their bond. You see an earlier portrait where he looks like a dancer, the beautiful torso Mm -hmm. and arms up over his head, beautiful face. This is quite 
extraordinary in a way, Mm -hmm. because as you say, there were leaps and bounds that they had to make. Is there an impact or was there an impact that lasted? It wasn't just Pat Nelson, Grant associated with the Ballet Neg, which were the first black ballet company to be founded, not just in Britain, but in Europe. Grant would have been associating with this ballet company at the time when he was doing all of these drawings. The drawings really show Grant's endless curiosity of the ways to present the male form. And dance is very important in exploring the possibilities of the the body and, and the ways that it can move. But this influence just isn't known. And people of African descent represented modernity, didn't they? They represented the urban, they represented getting away. A lot of British artists were looking at Harlem in particular, like immediately after the war. Prejudice still persisted for some people, and it would be wrong to ignore that. But at the same time, you're absolutely right that it was modernity. That's what it was. I think for some artists, they associated blackness with Africanness in a way that was incredibly problematic in that it was primitive. But for others, they recognized that it could be incredibly innovative and it was a way to break through the decimation that had occurred after World War One. Hello. Bonnie Greer, how are you, Damn sir? Hey, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Good trip. Yeah. I've been to Charleston, it's fabulous. I love it. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> I've returned to Gordon Square, back where I started, to discover more about the world connecting everything I've encountered on this walk the world of the home. I want to explore the intense interest of the Bloomsburys in domesticity, nests, safe places in which to experiment with their often genuinely radical ideas about living. Maybe in their homes, we can find a place to tie up the many threads of their lives. I joined Dr. Darren Clark, the rousing head of research, collections, and exhibition at Charleston Farmhouse, the Bloomsbury surviving country home. We also hear from the artist Sophie Corindon, who considers the radical, practical, and artistic sides of life in a Bloomsbury interior. I'm in one of the wonderful houses in Gordon Square. Are we at number 46, Dr. Kane's house? Or are we somewhere else? I thought we were... We're actually next door to 46, so we're in John Maynard Keynes's library. If you can tell us who originally lived in number 46. So in 1904, 46 Gordon Square became the home for four siblings, for Vanessa, Virginia, Adrian and Toby Stephen. Vanessa would later become Vanessa Bell, the artist, and Virginia Stephen would later become Virginia Woolf. They had been living at Hyde Park Gate, which was the home of their parents. Their father died in 1904. Their mother had died nine years before. And so they were given the freedom then to escape from their childhood home and to set up a new home together. What kind of home was in Hyde Park? Because you used the word escape. What was it like and what were they trying to do? It was very, very tall. The street was very narrow. It was very dark. And the inside was very Victorian. Black paint and red velvet. It was full of three families' things, as well as that Victorian sort of accumulation of objects. What did Gordon Square represent? I imagine, being who they were, they chose Gordon Square. 
in um, Hyde Park Gate, you look out the window, you can see the neighbour washing her neck. Whereas here in Gordon Square, we're looking out through the, the windows of Keynes's library and you can see trees and you can see space and you can see light. So it's almost like moving to the countryside, but at the same time, it was much more vibrant. It was noisy. You could hear the streets. You could hear people. You felt like you were at the centre of something. So how did painting a wall become part of what they were trying to do? I think there are gradations of radicalism. So in 1904, they were moving from this really heavy interior. They came in and they whitewashed the walls. They got rid of most of the furniture. And I think that is reflected in the way that they started to think as well. So you could get rid of the clutter of thought. You could get rid of the clutter of domesticity. And you could get rid of that clutter of expectation of behaviour at the same time. In High Park Gate, they had their bedrooms, but they didn't have any other private space. Having their own rooms, having their own spaces to work in, really freed them up to actually start having control of their creativity. It allowed them to entertain the people they wanted. They could have Adrian and Toby's friends from Cambridge to come along almost like an open house. So rather than them having to mind their P's and Q's and to be very polite and to entertain but not dominate a conversation or to express an opinion, suddenly they were with, with young men who, who weren't impressed or enticed by them as women who would treat them as their fellow undergraduates. You would think we had learnt to show our personalities through our interiors and yet you often go into interiors that you can't really get a sense of the personality that lives there. I think it's wonderful when you walk into a room and you get a sense of the person that lives or lived there. I think that's a wonderful thing and it's something I would want to leave as a legacy. I don't get the impression that it was for anyone other than themselves. It was their stage set, it was their backdrop. In actual fact, a lot of the, the painting is very much like a stage set. It was done very quickly with acrylic and oil and mixed together and, um, you know, conservator's nightmare. But that was the whole point. It wasn't, it wasn't meant to last. No one was thinking about it in those terms. They were thinking, well, let's just pop something on there and then tomorrow, if we don't like it, we'll pop something else on there. And it was never meant to be anything other than a sort of backdrop to their slightly colourful lives. <laughs> this radical change in 1910, which is the year that uh, Roger Fry put on the first post-impressionist exhibition and that affects interiors really dramatically. The first post-impressionist exhibition brought together works by Van Gogh, Gauguin and Cezanne. It was a challenge to this patriarchal establishment but it really excited and invigorated this younger generation of artists including Vanessa Ball and Duncan Grant and it changed the way that they were working and it changed the way that they thought about art. This was followed up a couple of years later by the second Post-Impressionist exhibition, including works by Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant. A few months after the second exhibition closed, Roger Fry set up the Omega workshops with Vanessa Bell and Duncan Grant as co-directors. And he really wanted to get that Post-Impressionist aesthetic outside of the, the picture frame and into people's homes. You could go to the 33 Fitzroy Square and you could choose textiles that had been designed by Vanessa Bell, Duncan Grant. You could buy carpets, you could buy children's toys, you could commission whole rooms, and they would all be in these really bright colours and these really strong patterns. There comes a breaking down of art and design so that 
art doesn't stop at the picture frames. It sort of fills the whole room, fills your whole life. I rather love the honesty with which they would sit on a chair, paint a chair, and then paint the chair into the painting. It's the sort of layers of art. It's the layers of creativity. There's a divide, there's craft, there's art, there's design. But the truth of the matter is they all overlap anyway. Of course they do. The interesting bit is the cracks in between. And so with Amiga, the fact that they were being allowed to be artists and designers, it wasn't frowned upon, it was just a way of making money. I don't know whether other people outside of that frowned on it or their artwork would have been denigrated by having done design work. Certainly that can be the case now, and I find that ridiculous and slightly (laughs) short-sighted. You know, artists have always had to do other things, certainly at the beginning of their career, to make money, to facilitate making their art. They broke rules, but it wasn't, it wasn't so revolutionary. And yet, of its time, it really was. They were kicking against their time. And bizarrely now, where you think everything's so free and fluid, it's not. We're still kicking against these boxes of um, you paint, you sculpt... You know, we're still talking about them now. And probably for those reasons, not necessarily because they were brilliant artists. It's more because of what they, what they represented and what they were doing and, and how they did it. The plate you eat your dinner from should be as beautiful and as aesthetically pleasing as the painting on the wall. Charleston is a home, and you can see we've got a beautiful painting yes. by Vanessa Bell of yes. Clive Bell and Duncan Grant sitting in the garden room at Charleston just after the Second World War. Look at that, look at that. <laughs> That looks like a nice evening in with a couple of empty bottles of wine and a, a lot of books and uh, some good conversation going on with a Picasso on the wall and the Matisse as well. And they look like human beings. Absolutely, yes, in their slippers. On my journey through Bloomsbury, I've come to appreciate the Bloomsbury set in a new and much more vital way. Although to our eyes they can seem distant, exclusive, removed from the world of the London street and its concerns, in many ways their lives could be a radical inspiration, even today. Their rejection of easy, conventional ideas and their all-out attempt to find new ways of being, in art and in life, give them a significance for my life that I'd never fully appreciated before. So... I'm even happier being a Bloomsbury local, knowing I share the streets with these creative and very independent ghosts. They really tried to do something. And it was was, was Mm. wonderful. Very proud of them. It's wonderful. (laughs) I feel very moved by them. I really do. I wish I could speak longer about them. I just feel like I'll just start. If you enjoyed the episode, please write a review and subscribe. We'll be back next week with another Walk of Art. And if you want to explore some of the areas of London yourself, take a look at the accompanying Walks of Art book on the Tate website.